HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, We're going to talk today about a um, medical uh, additive to the livestock industry called ractopamine. Um, There's actually a whole class of them. They're called beta agonists. And on the phone with me today is Guy Lawner again, a veterinary epidemiologist and professor of food safety and public health at Texas Tech University. Uh, Dr. Lonergan's research mission is to improve animal and public health by identification and exploration of solutions that address society's challenges. Oh, boy, that's a tall order, Doc. He is a member of the National Advisory Committee on Microbiological Criteria for Foods, the International Association of Food Protection Academy of Veterinary Consultants, for which he serves on the board of directors, the Conference of Research Workers in Animal Diseases, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, my favorite, and the Texas and Southwest Cattle Raisers Association, Texas Cattle Feeders Association, and the American Association of Bovine Practitioners. In other words, this is the man. If you want to know about cattle production, Dr. Guy Lonergan is the guy to ask. So, um, hello, Guy. <laughs> hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that introduction. I know I did. I can't believe I got through it without actually stumbling over some of those words. <clears throat> and I didn't practice. Um, so, Guy, you and uh, several partners at Texas Tech uh, recently uh, published a paper. It was called The Increased Mortality in Groups of Cattle Administered uh, Beta Adrenaline. Okay, now I am stumbling. Adrenergic agonists, ractopamine hydrochloride, and zilpaterol hydrochloride. This was published by the Public Library of Science, which means that all of us can read it. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, let's uh, get down to business. Uh, what are beta-, beta agonists and why are they used? Uh, very good, Katie. So beta agonists are analogous, so at least they have, in other words, similar properties to naturally occurring compounds that all of our bodies produce. These compounds are called catecholamine hormones when they're released in the blood, and we know them very well as adrenaline, and it's closely related chemicals. 
Now, beta agonists share some of the properties of the naturally occurring catecholamines, and they get their name because they selectively bind and agonize or uh, upregulate, if you will, beta receptors on cells or beta adrenergic receptors on cells. So they have a lot of uses. In human clinical medicine, we're very familiar, um, all of us are very familiar with their use in human clinical medicine in that lots of rescue inhalers for asthmatics or uh, daily administration of uh, certain drugs such as Advair uh, include a beta agonist and obviously they have tremendous clinical benefits. Uh, in animal production, what they found was that certain of these beta agonists, uh, when they're fed at a certain dose, can actually increase the muscle growth. Uh, so protein accretion in muscle, if you will, which is effectively muscle growth. And they may actually decrease fat deposition a little bit. So realistically, uh, the use in animals is to improve muscle growth in the animals. Now, um, last year, I guess it was around this time, uh, Tyson, which is one of the great uh, industrial livestock giants, chose to stop using Zilmax, which is one of the more common of these uh, drugs, why did they make that decision? So there are two beta agonists that have been approved for use in cattle by the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, Zilpaterol hydrochloride, or otherwise known as Zilmax, is one of them, mm -hmm. and ractofamine hydrochloride, otherwise known as Optiflex, is the other. Uh, Tyson uh, suspended its purchase of animals that are fed uh, one of them, the Zilmax product, and while I can't particularly go into the details of why they did that, certainly there has been reporting that has been done by Reuters that outlines some of the observations that have seen. And most notably, uh, soon after arrival at the slaughter plants, some animals became profoundly lame. Uh, in fact, some of the animals uh, lost part of their hoof wall uh, and that is obviously a very profound occurrence. Thankfully, it is extraordinarily rare, but nonetheless important. And while there is no definitive link to zilpaterol hydrochloride as the cause of this, clearly there was concern that it may be associated with this in some manner. So obviously Tyson took the action it did. Uh, and I believe in my interaction with them, the primary reason they took the action is that there are uh, good people who work in Tyson who are very concerned and really want to try and promote and protect the welfare of the animals on which they rely. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think when we look at what happened at the packing plants, it's very hard to definitively say that uh, Zilpaterol was the cause of it, but certainly it behooves us now to better understand that relationship so that if the product is reintroduced onto the market, we can defi definitively say one way or the other. Now, is this why you uh, decided to write this paper, or was the paper that you and your colleagues published recently already in the works before uh, Tyson chose to withdraw this drug from their uh, supply line? So our analysis of the feedlot data that we present in the manuscript it was an ongoing effort over a number of years, and our manuscript was well into the, into the drafting stage when Tyson uh, made their, their decision to stop accepting cattle that have fed one of the beta agonists. Mm -hmm. And what we describe in our manuscript is separate than what are uh, seen at the packing plants. We did not go into any 
packing plant data, if you will, we focus purely on some of the observations that have been uh, seen in feedlots in cattle that are administered one of these or two of these beta agonists, not two together, but looking at them separately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, what you know, if if it's not uh, from beta agonists such as Zilmax or uh, or rectopamine, what what other uh, factors could cause things like sore feet, the muscle pain or weakness that's been described, or the reluctance to move at all? I mean, what other possible explanation could there be other than a dr- some sort of drug use? Katie, that's a salient point. I think that is where we're needed to focus, is what are the factors that contribute to the observations that have been observed at packing plants in terms of animals that appear to be stiff or uh, lame. Uh, Thankfully, these are rare events, uh, but nonetheless, they are important. And if we want to control these and prevent them from happening in the future... Mm -hmm which Temple Grandin has admonished the industry that these events have to stop, then we need to understand what are the contributing factors and whether the factors that contribute to it are whether they're related to transportation or they're related to the fact that cattle are now bigger than they used to be when we send them to slaughter. Hmm. Uh, If that's a factor, uh, how they're handled, certainly the temperature and time of the year, this seems to be overrepresented during the hottest times of the year, so summer, uh, early summer, late summer, early fall. So there are a number of factors that we really need to explore, and there's a deal of effort going on around the country gearing up to explore those in a number of different research institutions. Mm-hmm. And in your study in particular, what, which were the factors that you you guys really, because you, you worked on the basis of observational data, as you told me earlier today. So, <clears throat> so the observational data is what the packing plants were reporting in terms of muscle stiffness, lameness. How, were there any animals that actually died from this? So what we focused in on was what's happening at the feedlot. So before they're shipped to the slaughter uh-huh. facilities. I see. And so the data that we were able to analyze was actually collected by the feedlots and shared to us from the feedlot. So this is independent of any observation at the slaughter plant, at the if packing you will. House, right. And our primary interest uh, in our analysis was trying to understand if the use of one of these drugs is associated with increased likelihood of animals dying. Mm-hmm. And it, we should be clear that death in feedlots, particularly during the terminal parts of feeding when these products are used, is a very rare event. And while it is rare, it is nevertheless not quite as rare in those animals that are fed beta agonist. We did see a significant increase in the likelihood of an animal dying in those groups that were administered one of these beta agonists. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Why is it that countries like Russia and China, which are hardly known for their concern over either animal welfare or human welfare, for that matter, um, in terms of the food chain. Why uh, and why has the EU has also banned the use of beta agonists in their animal production? And we have well, not. I, I think that's uh, another great question, Katie, and I, I don't know the exact answer. <laughs> oh, come that. on. <laughs> well, so except that um, obviously Europe uh, has a particular societal interest uh, and have not allowed the use of uh, growth promotants, hormone growth promotants, or the use of beta agonist in animal production. If 
for quite a period of time. So that is an entrenched societal uh, demand, and that is reflected in their policies. In terms of Russia and China, I don't know the fully. I don't fully know all of the factors that have contributed to their uh, decision not to allow them, uh, except that uh, obviously the, the the international body that sets the uh, trade of food products, if you will, the mm-hmm. Codex Alimentarius, has approved uh, a certain maximum residue limit of ractosamine in uh, cattle and pig pork. products, so mm-hmm. beef and pork. Uh, and that approval process, while it has been approved, was not necessarily a, a consensus process. And maybe some of that non-consensus, if you will, has resulted in some of the actions of China and Russia at the moment. Hmm. But I can only speculate on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a discrepancy. You just mentioned the Codex Alimentarius. Um, in their uh, in the Codex, their decision about beta agonist use uh, said the maximum residue limit could be 10 parts per billion for muscle cuts of beef and pork, whilst the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's limit is 30 parts per billion for beef and 50 parts per billion for pork. Why why that discrepancy? Do you think? Well, there's a number of reasons, and I think the first and most obvious reason is that in the U.S. we only have one body, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, that has to make the decision to set these maximum residue limits, Mm -hmm. whereas internationally in the Codex Committee there's well over 150 members that have to agree on some level that is deemed appropriate to facilitate trade. So I, I think see. what we're seeing in those differences is a, a difference of opinion of how to proceed and set maximum residue limits to encourage trade versus that to encourage domestic consumption. Mm-hmm. Is there any danger from uh, the residue of either of these drugs in the meat we consume? Yeah, I don't think so, Katie. Uh, if I can just talk a little bit to the uh, FDA drug approval process. Mm-hmm. Certainly, while it is not a perfect process, it is nonetheless a very rigorous process. And any time a drug sponsor, so a pharmaceutical company, decides to uh, request approval of a new label, so they want to market a, a drug with, that has a certain claim associated, such as increased growth rate or uh, control or treatment of a respiratory disease, for instance, they have to show a number of safety factors. They have to show, obviously, a target animal safety, so the drug has to be safe in the animals you use. The sponsor also has to show environmental safety, and the highest hurdle it has to get over is that it has to show human safety for those people who are going to eat uh, the beef or pork or poultry, whatever it is, that are derived from the animals to which the drugs are administered. Mm -hmm. And that is a long and rigorous series of uh, processes that the pharmaceutical companies have to go through. So again, while it is not perfect, it certainly is a rigorous uh, process. And I think that uh, given the approval process and the rigorous nature of it, I'm fairly confident in, in the human safety of the approval process of these two drugs. Mm. 
I'm glad to hear that because I, I don't have uh, such a rosy uh, picture of the FDA and how they give approval. I mean, right now there are many substances that are <clears throat> included in our food chain, which are uh, quote unquote GRAS, grass generally recognized as safe, which have undergone absolutely no trials whatsoever, except for those which the uh, industry itself chooses to put them through. Um, for example, nano silver in food packaging, they still they have no idea whether or not that crosses the blood brain barrier, but it's being implemented. It's being used in our packaging now without any uh, any of these rigorous tests that you refer to. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to uh, maybe I want to take a short break, actually, because it's it's halfway through this program. Let's take a quick, short uh, sponsor drop and we'll be right back with Dr. Guy Lonner again, talking more about um, about beta agonists and the food chain. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking about beta agonists in uh, cattle, pork, uh, yeah, cattle and pork production in the United States with Dr. Guy Lawner, again, a veterinary epidemiologist and professor of food safety at Texas Tech University. He is the author of a recently published paper about uh, the impact of uh, beta agonists such as rectopamine and Zilmax on uh, cattle populations uh, where cattle have been observed to uh, possibly die from using this drug although it's not clear. So um, let's, let's talk a little bit about your study, a little more about your study, and, and how did the livestock industry respond to your study? Were they, were they happy with your results? Yeah, so as a, <laughs> as a high summary of our data, uh, we had information on almost a million head of cattle right. across almost 20 different uh, operations. And what we found is relatively consistently across all operations that there is a significant increase in the likelihood of death in animals that are administered a beta agonist compared to their contemporaneous controls. Uh-huh. This was, um, admittedly, a, a, a death is a very rare event, thankfully, in feedlots, but it has nonetheless increased, and significantly so, in those animals that were administered the beta agonist. And uh, some of our data were from randomized controlled studies whereas those for Zulpaterol were from observational studies, albeit uh, in excess of uh, 800,000 head of cattle. So a very large data set across mm-hmm. multiple operations. So um, we were talking earlier uh, before we did the show about um, uh, the value of observed data versus experimental data and, and pursuing this population data and drugs like uh, beta agonists and how the way you set up your study or the way you you wrote your study uh, was uh, somewhat different from what would normally be the case in which there would be some sort of a randomized study and then a controlled experiment on those. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between what you did for this study and what normally happens when um, people want to research an event such as the one you described in which there was an increase in mortality from the use of a drug? 
Sure, Katie. So in animal science or in agricultural sciences in general, uh, most of the training focuses on research that is conducted by experimentation. Mm -hmm. And by that I mean that let's say we have a group of animals and we want to test uh, how effective a drug is, we would randomise some of those animals to the drug and then would randomise some of those animals to a placebo, for instance. Right. And then we would design the experiment and monitor it. And that is, those types of experiments are seen as the highest uh, form of causal relationship. So if you want to make a, a statement that this drug causes that, then that type of study is seen as valuable. In human clinical medicine, however, uh, they have come to accept a lot more observational data. So in some instances, an experiment isn't possible to do. It's either unethical or the scope of it is difficult or other reasons constrain your ability to do an experiment. So they're more adept at using observational data. And that, those types of tools are what we used in looking at observational data, so non-experimental data. So the concern with experimental excuse me, with observational data, is that you may have some problematic, extraneous variable that biases your observed relationship between, say, the drug and increased mortality. Mm -hmm. And so what we do in that situation is we collect as much information about those potential variables, such as an animal's weight or the days that they are at the feedlot before they were fed a beta agonist or the number of health events in that pen before they were fed a beta agonist. And we test that in a statistical model to see if it actually results in a bias of our relationship. And what we found is of the variables that we were able to uh, uh, evaluate, none of them biased that relationship. So mm -hmm. whenever we looked at that, we saw the same thing in that uh, use of a beta agonist was associated with a statistical increase in the likelihood of death. Interesting. And yet the uh, the industry itself, or rather I should say the manufacturers of these drugs, uh, which are primarily Merck and Elanco, a division of Eli Lilly, um, <clears throat> they they suggested that the way you had conducted these uh, this study was really not a valid method. Um, so how do you respond to something like that? I mean, if they say, well, uh, this, this method didn't actually work, um, and yet you have been able to demonstrate that in spite of all of the potential variables, you still got the same results. I mean, how do you um, make them sit up and listen? <laughs> I guess is well, my question. I, uh, I know it's kind of a feeble one, but still, it's sort of interesting. Yeah, so the, the pharmaceutical companies, uh, we sort of call them companies, but really each of them is made up by people and most of them are made up by very good people and I get sure. to interact with them and they try very hard to look at the data and make the right decision. Right. And so unusual as I sort of tried to illustrate in animal agriculture and agriculture in general, we rely or have relied on experimentation. So really when you look to make decisions or make uh, assessments of the safety of a drug or the effectiveness of a drug, you look for those experiments. And yep. what we provided is a modeling approach that has become more common in human clinical medicine and becoming more common in veterinary medicine, but hasn't yet reached the wider agricultural industry to the same extent. Mm -hmm. And that is how you explore and rigorously evaluate observational data. And so I think what we're trying to do collectively 
um, society as a whole is to ask some of these questions about how we make informed decisions when there is no perfect data set. And I think right. that's what we're seeing at the moment. And you know, I think it's worthwhile remembering that uh, these drugs, beta agonists, add a lot of value to the beef production system. They significantly increase the amount of muscle, which turns into meat, uh, an animal puts down, and that adds value. It also has direct benefits to the producers and the people involved in production, but also indirect benefits to society in general. And by that I mean that uh, to produce the same amount of beef, we would use less fuel, less water right. and less feed with the beta agonist than if we didn't use it, and that reduces the carbon footprint of the system. So that is a societal benefit. On the other hand, uh, I think our data are compelling that there are concerns about animal welfare in a small subset of animals fed beta agonist. So while we have some societal benefits that are real and warrant a serious discussion about how we capture them, on the other hand, we have societal expectations of how we protect and promote the welfare of the animals we raise for food. And it's not an easy balancing act. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, on one side, we have value, and on the other side, we have concerns about welfare. Right. Absolutely. Well, I, I don't think there's anything easy about any of this stuff. I mean... <clears throat> certainly one understands why you would want to maximize your profit margin on uh, something that is inherently unprofitable, which is meat production. Um, there's, I think this is a quote from your paper about <clears throat> how controlled at cattle experiments, the number of animals included is usually insufficient. Okay, I'm going to move on to this. In, as a result, most drug approvals require some post-approval monitoring, uh, often termed the pharmacoepidemiology or type 4 trials and the self-reporting by patients of side effects either the company, the FDA, or their doctor is part and parcel of a holistic drug regulatory framework. But in this case of uh, the beta agonist use in, in livestock, that doesn't appear to have happened so much. Am I accurate in saying so? And if, the, if I am, why was that? So the statement, the statement in our manuscript more addresses what happens in the human pharmaceutical side. In the animal pharmaceutical side, there is a specific office at the FDA that does collect of, um, information about uh, so-called adverse drug events, and uh -huh. this is an office that routinely collects them. And type 4 or phase 4 studies that are performed after the drug is approved uh, through that process of approval does happen quite a lot. Uh, but what we're saying is that most of those phase four studies are to evaluate the targeted label claim. So in, right. in the case of beta agonist, it's animal performance. But if you look at the, the magnitude of change in death loss uh, of, say, two per thousand animals, which is a relatively small change, 0.2%, then you would require a study that would exceed 30,000 animals. And, that's and so practical. they become very big studies and are not the primary focus of these phase four studies. Mm -hmm. So what we're left with are observations that the owners and caregivers of the animals may uh, see and then occasionally they may uh, raise a concern that they might be linked to a particular drug and then they have to call, make the active effort to call the FDA to report those events. Right. And that or, they, or they call the drug sponsor, and at that stage the drug sponsors uh, report that, and they're very good and diligent at reporting adverse drug events.
Oh, who knew? Um, one of the things that really uh, interests me about this is what you referred to earlier, which is the sort of the value, the added value of these drugs in terms of increasing the value of the animal versus uh, control, concerns about animal welfare. And I'm going to read you a quote uh, from Temple Grandin, who has been a very outspoken critic of the use of uh, beta agonists. In fact, she was the one who got me interested in this like three or four years ago, and I've been following it ever since. Um, So she says uh, the following, the quality and quantity of meat are two opposing goals. Beef cattle fed too many beta agonists will have less marbling and tougher meat, and meat companies who want high-quality meat have already banned or greatly restricted these products in their programs. Unfortunately, there are some meat companies who pay a premium for animals with a high percentage of lean meat, and this has provided an economic incentive to overuse beta agonists, which have resulted in many lame cattle. She says it's quite a problem. Um, they do this because they are selling beef to low-end consumers, and they put all the meat through a needle machine to tenderize it, and thus low-income consumers are buying most of this meat. Um, and so the, the question is quality versus quantity here, and uh, how, how do you balance that? And I know that's kind of a, sort of a philosophical question rather than a practical one. But, um, you know, where do you, where do you draw the line between animal welfare and profit? And how do, and how do you make that determination, especially if you're a company that is you know, beholden to your shareholders, for example, or to a consumer population that demands cheap meat, which is what we are, right? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's a great question, and there's actually a number of questions in there, Katie. And the yes. first one deals <laughs> with how we define quality. Yeah. And quality in terms of beef is defined by the amount of marbling that is present right. uh, in the beef. And certainly we can see that uh, with use of certain beta agonists, either uh, of uh, zilpaterol or of higher doses of ractosamine, where the dose is allowed to vary, uh, that you can decrease to some degree the amount of marbling. So that would technically be reduction in quality mm-hmm. by the, the USDA definition. The other thing that uh, Temple is talking about is that in general... When beta agonists are are used, are fed to the animals, the beef derived from those animals is not quite as tender. Right, because it doesn't have the marbling, yeah. Well, and even independent of the marbling, there is some work that would indicate that it's not quite as tender, even when you have the same level of marbling. Really? So this difference in tenderness uh, can be detected with very sensitive equipment. So uh, what we call Warner-Bratzler Shearforth or other types of Shearforth, you can detect that. Um, even some trained uh, human panels that you spend a lot of time training and getting them up to speed, they can detect a subtle difference in tenderness. Uh, but the, the conclusions have been uh, that those differences are relatively subtle and most people would not detect the difference in tenderness. Uh-huh. I thought you were going to say those very sensitive instruments called teeth, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> very good. So I, I think the other question you raised is this value of economics and profit versus animal welfare. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very glad that we're not solely driven by economics. Obviously, it's an important factor in our daily lives. We hope to make more money than uh, we spend or, or that sure. certainly make as much money as we need to live so we can continue on with our lifestyle. So economics is important, but obviously welfare is first and foremost a fundamental 
aspect of animal care. Uh, and as you raise animals for food or you are a slaughter plant, the welfare of the animals is critically important. And I think Tyson's action is really testament that welfare trumps economics. Hmm. The, their action uh, led them to uh, basically give up a lot of value and had not... Um, other events happen and they were the only company that did that, then they would have given up a competitive advantage or assigned to themselves a competitive disadvantage. But it's clear in that situation that welfare trumped that economic gain to be had. And again, it's not definitively linked to either one of those products, but certainly they had reasonable concern and felt they had to act to promote and protect the welfare of their animals. Well, so I, I think it's very good that welfare is so important and does trump economics. I, I, I'd like to believe you, Guy, um, but I, I will play devil's advocate here and say, what about the fact that so many countries have banned the use of these drugs in, uh, in their food sources and thus uh, abandoning the use of it has actually given them a competitive edge in the international market? I mean, don't you think that played a factor, played, played as a factor in this decision as well? If that was a factor in their decision, I was not privy to those discussions. So the discussions I had with Tyson revolved solely around their concern about welfare of the animals. Right. And certainly, well, there are, certainly there are uh, trade implications. We talked previously about some countries that do not allow uh, yeah. any level or have extremely low levels of a beta agonist in their product. Yeah. Um, and they do limit trade, and trade is an important means by which value is added to beef, pork, and poultry. Yep. Um, so certainly there are competing opportunities for companies as they look to how best to position themselves as a viable uh, company in the marketplace. Do they pursue the added value of, say, using a particular drug, or do they look to gain that value or more from exports? And that's a complex issue. Very complex. I mean, I'm thinking of the Smithfield purchase uh, last year, um, you know, which spent many months being debated in Congress, but ultimately went through with the uh, Shuang Hui company in China buying Smithfield outright. And, um, and Smithfield, in advance of this sale, had already begun phasing out for one sector of their business, hog business, had begun phasing out the use of um, of beta agonists for that very reason that uh, that so many in the international market were refusing to buy from them. So I thought, you know, it, to me it seemed like, um, well, you know, I'd like to think it was for the basis of animal welfare, but uh, you know, I, I, as you said before, this is a very complex business, and uh, it's I think hard to tease out um, all of the motives behind decisions like this, which clearly are. Uh, have a very big impact on their bottom line. Um, Guy, I think we have to sort of wrap it up here, unfortunately, um, but I hope you'll come back and tell us more about animal welfare and uh, veterinary medicine and epidemiology. Um, if people want to read this report, and uh, it's hard to imagine that anyone but me as a lay person, <laughs> I'm the only one who's geeky enough to actually read this. <laughs> she says snarky. Um, but if people do want to read it, where can they find it? So this is freely available, as you said, at PLOS1, P-L-O-S space O-N-E. So it's PLOS1, and it's freely available to anyone. They just have to search for my last name. And attached to that paper is my email address. So if 
uh, lay people like you or anyone wants to read it and have questions, then they can very easily just click on that hyperlink and shoot me an email and I'm all too happy to try and answer those questions. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's really been an interesting discussion. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Um, And I'm going to spell your last name because it's not obvious uh, how to spell it. And it's L-O-N-E-R-A-G-A-N, correct? That is correct. Yeah, because usually it's Lonergan, I think most people think, and certainly I pronounced it fast enough so it would sound like that. So, um, folks, if you want to read this, and and I'm sure there are other papers there with your name attached to them, Guy, um, about other aspects of veterinary medicine in the livestock sector, uh, definitely worth reading. This is very readable, by the way. I mean, even though I'm a geek... uh, you know, I'm not that smart, so it was uh, a pleasure to read it because I could actually understand pretty much everything that it said. <laughs> well, very good. We tried very hard to <laughs> yeah. get it readable. Yeah, no, you did a good job. It was really interesting. Um, so thanks again for joining me today. Thanks again to my sponsor, Tabard Inn, and thanks to my engineer, Jack Insley, as always. And uh, we'll see you next week with another episode of What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights with me, Katie Kiefer. So long, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.